Well, church, last week, um, Eric launched us into a new section in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, which are some of the most complicated and theologically confusing passages in all of the scriptures. N.T. Wright, the Anglican bishop and theologian and author, had said of these chapters that they are as full of problems as a hedgehog is full of prickles. Meaning that there is a lot that we can get stuck on here. And the reason that these chapters are considered so difficult and complicated is because they touch on issues like predestination and election and free will and the sovereignty of God and other easy to understand stuff like that without making any effort at all to try to reconcile these seemingly contradictory ideas. And so these, these chapters often feel like a daunting task to engage in a coherent way. But as Eric started us into these passages last week, he did so by giving us a, a framework or, or a lens through which to view these chapters, which I believe helps to simplify and diffuse their complicated tensions, while at the same time giving us an incredibly helpful and biblically faithful model to follow in the midst of the the difficult-to-understand moments in our lives as well. The framework which Eric laid out for us is that in these chapters of, of Romans 9 through 11, Paul is not attempting to write a theological treatise or, or to make some fulsome explanation or defense of the doctrines of predestination and free will. This isn't a Calvinism versus Arminianism debate. But instead, Paul is dealing with a personal crisis of faith and a pastoral emergency among his people, the Jews, in light of their rejection of God's promised Messiah. And so the issue at stake in these chapters is not, does God choose us or do we choose him? It's actually much bigger than that. The issue Paul is wrestling with here is, have God's promises failed? And so who cares about defending a system of theology when the very goodness and trustworthiness of God is at stake, right? And that's the case here because Paul has just spent eight chapters explaining the message of the gospel and the promises of God which came to and through the Jewish people. Earlier in Romans, Paul had highlighted their advantages in regard to salvation. And that they had been given the sign of God's covenant promise. And they had been entrusted with the oracles of God. In the beginning of chapter 9, Paul said, To them belongs the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. The very message of salvation and the Savior Himself came to and through the Jewish people. And yet, in their rejection of Jesus, they now find themselves outside of the covenant of faith, looking in. And so for Paul, this isn't a theological debate, it's a, it's a personal and pastoral crisis. I mean, this was him before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. These are his family and his friends, his people. 
that he deeply loves and cares about, now separated from the Lord. Paul's distraught and burdened for them. And this is also a pastoral crisis for the church as well. Because if God's promises of salvation to the Jews didn't stand, then what assurance is there for the church and God's promises to them? What assurances can we have in His promises to us? And so to make sense of what he's experiencing and to encourage the people of God to have faith in the promises of God, Paul turns to the Word of God. And he looks to the promises of God in the Scriptures to make sense of the confusion and the disappointment and the heartache that he's experiencing in life because of the Jewish rejection of the Messiah. And that's what we have in Romans chapters 9 through 11. It's Paul turning to the scriptures to make sense of this crisis of faith. Now, as an aside, let me just commend this to you as a model way to address any kind of crisis in your life. Whenever you face things in this world that are confusing or heartbreaking or painful, when things around you don't make sense and are hard to understand, follow Paul's example and turn to God's Word to find perspective and to make sense of what you are experiencing. Our experiences in this world can often be disorienting. Our feelings about things in this world can often be misleading. But God's word is always reliable and it is always true. And so when we get turned around, God's word will rightly reorient us. When what is right and good and true seems unclear or it gets muddied in our minds because of the noise around us, God's word will bring clarity to those issues. The scriptures are the authoritative word of God for our lives. And so when we need clarity or help or direction in the midst of our confusion, God's word is always the right place to turn. And when Paul turned there, in light of these concerns about the trustworthiness of God's promises in the face of the Jews' rejection, Paul was reminded that God's promises in election had not failed. God had indeed chosen the Jews and promised salvation to them. Not because of anything that they had done, but solely by His grace and mercy. And the remnant of faithful Israel that still existed was proof that God's promises were true. Despite the current state of Israel, God's promises and election stand. His word is trustworthy and true. It was to the Jews. It is to the church. It will be to you and to me. Romans 9 made that clear. God had not failed. But if that's true, then how do we explain Israel's rejection of God? Right? If we are saved by the election of God, by, by God choosing us then why is anyone lost? Is that somehow God's failing or God's fault? 
is he to blame? That's where Paul turns next. And he does so by once again looking to the scriptures and to the promises of God to make sense of a confusing situation. And what Paul shows us in in Romans chapter 9, verse 30 and following. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it and to turn there with me. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. What Paul shows us in these verses is that the reason that the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness found it. And the reason that the Jews who pursued righteousness through the law didn't find it is because the Jews didn't pursue that righteousness by faith, as the Gentiles did. But they sought righteousness as if it were based on works. They tried to earn their righteousness. And so they stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And what Paul is saying through the quotation of Scripture is that righteousness comes by faith, not by works. It comes by believing in God, not by behaving for God. And the Jews didn't accept that. And so rather than trusting in Jesus... They tripped over him. And what Paul goes on to say in the beginning of chapter 10 is that his heart hurts for the Jews in this. Because he knows that they are zealous for God. And he should know. Because he was one of them. Paul shows how zealous he uh, as a Jew was in Philippians chapter 3 when he recounts how he was circumcised on the eighth day. And how as to the law, he was a Pharisee. How as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. How as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. The Jews were meticulous at following the laws of God. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus points out how they even tithed their very spices. That they were zealous to follow the law to the nth degree. But in focusing on the law, they missed the very purpose of of the law, which was to point them to the Savior who would fulfill the law for them. They were zealous for God, but not according to knowledge, Paul says. For they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and refused to submit to God's righteousness, who is Jesus, and instead sought to establish their own righteousness through their obedience to the law. But as Paul says in chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And what he means by that is that in his life, Jesus fulfilled the law in the way that no one else could. And hence, he has made an end to the pursuit of righteousness through the law. Righteousness cannot be obtained by obeying the law, but by being good enough. It can only come by believing in the one who fulfilled the law for us. Our righteousness isn't about what we do. It is about what Christ has done. And if we believe in him and the work that he did upon the cross for our sins, we receive his righteousness. But if we reject him 
and the work that he did on our behalf, then we are left to establish a righteousness of our own, which is an impossible task. And that's what Paul goes on to explain through the use of of a number of Old Testament scriptures in verse 5 and following. First, he points to Moses' writing about righteousness that is based on the law. And quoting from Leviticus 18, Paul says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Which means that if you can follow all of God's laws, you will have life. If you do them, you will live and be blessed by God. The problem is that no one other than Jesus has ever been able to do that. This is why Paul in Galatians clarifies that no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Because no one has succeeded in obeying it. So the problem is not a problem with the law. If it was followed, it would work. Instead, the problem is with us. The weakness of the law is our weakness. And because we disobey it, instead of it bringing life, it only brings death. By the law, no one is justified. But then Paul goes on to quote Moses again, and this time it's in regards to a righteousness that is based on faith. And here, quoting from Deuteronomy, Paul says that the righteousness that is based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend to the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? That the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And what Paul through Moses is saying is that to obtain the righteousness that comes by faith does not take some great or grand act. We don't have to give a superhuman effort to obtain this. We don't have to rise to the heavens because Christ has already come down from there for us. But we don't have to descend into the abyss to deal with our own sins in death. Because Christ has already done that for us by his death and resurrection. Instead, we simply have to believe the message that has been given to us. The message of faith that Paul proclaimed that the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. Because if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord... And we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved. And church, it really is that simple. The righteousness that is based on faith comes through believing the message about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus. If we believe that, we are righteous. If we believe him, we are saved. It really is that simple. And this message is available to everyone, Jew or Greek, Paul says, Jew or Gentile. Those categories capture every human being alive for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So faith comes simply from hearing. And believing the message 
about Jesus. So the obvious question then, given Paul's dilemma, which he addresses in verse 18 is, did the Jews not hear? Do they not believe because they haven't heard? But Paul, pointing to the scriptures again, says, indeed they have heard. And then quoting from Psalm 19 shows that the testimony of God has gone out from all of the earth to all of the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So it is not a case. It is not the case that the Jews haven't heard this message of salvation. So the next logical question then is, did they not understand? But Paul turns to the scriptures again and with three successive quotes from Moses and Isaiah, he shows that it is not an issue of understanding either. Because the Gentiles who knew nothing of God and didn't seek after God found him or better yet were found by him. The message of the gospel was that available. It was that understandable. It was that Accessible. It was that easy to hear and understand that those with no knowledge of God who weren't seeking after God found Him. The problem wasn't with the difficulty of understanding the message. Instead, the problem was that Israel was a disobedient and contrary people. And so Romans 10 ends with a picture of God holding open hands towards the Jews. It's a reminder to them of His constant pursuit of them, of His constant invitation to them, of His constant beckoning, pleading, calling them back to Himself, and of His continued, constant waiting for them to return to Him. But in their stubbornness, and in their hardness of heart, they have rejected The righteousness of God. And so at the end of Romans chapter 9 and 10, we're left with the clear biblical evidence that if anyone is saved, it is by the mercy of God. That's Romans chapter 9. But that if anyone is lost, it's because of their own hardness of heart. That's Romans chapter 10. Our salvation, if we have it, is because of God. Our failure to obtain salvation, if we haven't done so, is because of us. It's our responsibility. And so I want to close this morning by talking about a couple points of application that this passage has for our lives. And the first practical application from this passage Uh, Very simply and bluntly put is that Romans chapter 10 reminds us that you are responsible for your own decision of faith. And I want to say this particularly to the the kids in our church, the older kids, anyone that's like 9, 10, 8, 9, 10 years old and older, or to anyone in the church who finds themselves on unsteady footing with faith, or to anyone who's been caught up in this move to to want to deconstruct their faith. If you've fallen into any of those categories, please hear me say this, that you are responsible for your own decision of faith. You 
And you alone are responsible for your decision to believe the message of the gospel and to confess your faith in Jesus. If you choose not to believe, or if you choose to to, to deconstruct your faith, you cannot blame anyone but yourself. You cannot blame God. You cannot blame your parents. You cannot blame the church. You cannot blame your friends or the world. What Romans 10 shows us is that you alone are responsible for your decision of faith in Jesus. That is true today. That was true in Paul's day. That has always been the case. I love the story at the end of the book of Joshua, where after Joshua had led God's people into the promised land and and they had received this incredible gift from God, Joshua gathers all of the people together and he reminded them about all of the amazing things that God had done for them and, and in them and through them. And then he told them, choose this day who you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You have to choose the same. This day and every day. Whom you will serve. Whether it will be the Lord. Or whether it will be yourself. Or whether it will be the many gods of this world. No one can make that decision for you. We, the church, and we, your parents, and we, your friends, will teach you about the great things that God has done for you. And we will remind you of and declare to you His goodness. But ultimately, the decision of whether or not you follow Him is up to you. Your faith is your responsibility and no one else's. So choose wisely. Choose life that you may live. You're responsible for your faith. The second piece of application I want to make out of this passage is in regard to the theological debate of of predestination versus free will that often surrounds these two particular chapters of Scripture. Does God choose us or do we choose Him? And to that debate, I want to point us to the Reverend Charles Simeon, an Anglican priest in the 1800s, who ministered during a time when this Arminian-Calvinism controversy was bitter and divisive. And to his congregation in that time, Simeon warned them of the danger of forsaking Scripture in favor of a theological system. And he told them, When I come to a text which speaks of election, I delight myself in the doctrine of election. When the apostles exhort me to repentance and to obedience and indicate my freedom of choice and action, I give myself up to that side of the equation. And this is what we have in Romans chapter 9 and 10. At the end of chapter 9, Paul has demonstrated from the scriptures that the reason anyone is saved is because of the mercy of God. And yet here at the end of chapter 10, he shows that the reason anyone is lost is because of their own hardness of heart. So does God choose us? Yes, absolutely. And anyone who knows the saving grace of God knows that it was all God's initiative in our lives that has saved us. But at the same time, do we choose God? 
Yes, absolutely. And all who have rejected him are responsible for their decision not to have chosen him. So my exhortation to you in this apparent contradiction is to cling tightly to the scriptures, which are the words of God. Cling more tightly to the scriptures, which are the words of God, than to any theological system, which are the words of man. It's okay and even good for us to live in some of the apparent mysteries of how these things work themselves out in God's sovereign plan. That humbles us. That makes us more dependent upon God, which is always a good place to be. For the final piece of application from this passage, I want to take a step back uh, and to look at this passage in its larger context and the broader narrative of Romans 9 through 11. And the reason that this is important is because if you look at Romans chapter 10 in isolation, then the whose fault is it question in regards to the Jews' rejection of Jesus makes sense. That's what Paul is arguing in this passage. That it's not God's fault, but it is the Jews' own fault that they have rejected faith. But if you take a step back and you look at the fuller picture of these chapters, and if you look at Romans chapter 10 in light of its larger context of Romans 9 through 11, well, then you realize that there is something much grander going on here than whose fault is it. And there is a far better and more appropriate question for us to be asking. This was the lesson from our gospel reading this morning from John chapter 9 and the story of the man who was born blind. In that story, Jesus' disciples walked past a man who was blind and they asked Jesus, whose fault was it that this man was blind? Was it his fault or his parents' fault? Who was responsible for this tragic circumstance? They wanted to know. In response to their question, Jesus corrected their thinking and challenged their presuppositions by saying, it was not this man who sinned or his parents who sinned that he was born blind. But instead, his blindness had occurred in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus went on to miraculously heal the man's sight, which then provided an undeniable witness to the glory and the power of God at work through his son. God had a greater purpose in that man's blindness, which was for his ultimate glory and for the man's ultimate good. And in a different way, the very same thing, the same dynamic is going to be proved to be true in Romans as well. I don't want to spoil next week's sermon. But I, what I will say is that this is not the end of the story for the Jewish people. And that God often plays the long game in his redemptive work. And that at the end of the passage next week, when this story of Romans 9 through 11 is complete, Paul will summarize the entire section of Scripture with one of the most beautiful doxologies that exists in all of the Bible as he marvels at the mystery and the grandeur and the glory of how God works in salvation. And so in light of this larger narrative... The whose fault is it question is really short-sighted, and it is a hope-ending 
question. That's a question that assigns blame and lacks empathy and and godly vision and that, that assumes that a story is over. But what Jesus shows us in John chapter 9 and what Paul will show us in Romans chapter 11 is that there is always a far better question to ask than whose fault is it. And that question is, how might God be at work even in this for his glory and for our good? How might God redeem even this situation? That is a far better question to ask. And that's the question that Paul is ultimately asking here. And do you know how I know? Consider what Paul doesn't do in Romans chapter 10. He doesn't give up hope. He doesn't assume that the story is over for the Jews. In fact, he does the exact opposite. In verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul says that he prays to God for the Jews that they might be saved. And Paul made his life's work, even after he wrote Romans, a work of being sent in order to preach the gospel so that people could hear it, so that they could believe it, so that they could be saved by it. Paul never gives up hope on God and how he might work in redemptive ways in the lives of the people that he loved. And so he kept on praying and he kept on living and speaking the message of the gospel so that everyone might have a chance to hear and rehear, to consider and reconsider the good news of God's salvation in Jesus. And we should do the same thing. Like Paul, we all have people in our lives that we know and love who do not currently have a relationship with Jesus. We all know people who have rejected this message of righteousness that comes by faith in the Son of God. And in the same way that Paul's heart was broken by his loved one's rejection of Jesus, our hearts are broken. By those that we love who don't have a relationship with the Lord also. But as is the case with the Jews, so is the case with our loved ones. In that God is not done with His redemptive work in this world. And in the end, I'm convinced that we will all be surprised and in awe of how God works in salvation. And we'll worship him for what he has done. And so until that moment comes, we can pray for the salvation of the lost. And we can proclaim the message of salvation to the lost. And we can live redeemed lives among the lost as a model to the watching world. And in doing so, we will participate with Christ in His redemptive work for God's glory and for our good. Amen.